This is a recording of Joseph Smith's education and intellect as described in the documentary Sources by Brian C. Hales, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Brian Hales. Joseph Smith's education and intellect as described in documentary Sources. Abstract, although Joseph Smith has been credited with approximately seven full school years of district schooling, further research supports that his education consisted of basic instruction in reading, writing, and the ground rules of arithmetic, comprising less than two years of formal schooling. The actual numbers of terms he experienced in common schools in upstate New York is probably less critical since the curricula in district schools did not teach then creative writing, composition, or extemporaneous speaking. If Joseph Smith learned how to compose and dictate a book, extracurricular activities would likely have been the training source. Six of those have been identified. One, private Bible studies. Two, Hiram Smith's possible tutoring in 1813. Participation in local religious activities involvement with the local juvenile debate club, five, occasional family storytelling gatherings, and six, brief participation as an exhorter at Methodist meetings. Three of his teachers in Kirtland in 1834 through 1836 recalled his impressive learning ability, but none described him as an accomplished scholar. A review of all available documentation shows that no acquaintance at that time or later called him highly educated or as capable of authoring the Book of Mormon. Despite its current popularity, the theory that Joseph Smith possessed the skills needed to create the Book of Mormon in 1829 is contradicted by dozens of eyewitness accounts and supported only by minimal historical data. As a controversial personality of the early 19th century, Joseph Smith Jr. has been called a prophet, treasure seeker, translator, city organizer, prisoner, Freemason, banker, lieutenant general, religious genius, polygamist, martyr, and author. This last title has generated controversy because Joseph Smith reported he was not the author of the Book of Mormon, instead declaring its words came to him by the gift and power of God. Critics reject this claim, asserting that naturalistic explanations can answer the question, where did all the words come from? For example, Richard S. Van Wagener refers to secondary literature of some 6,000-plus titles that scrutinize the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's empirical claims. Then Van Wagener confidently asserts, quote, The main conclusion of this particular growing body of work is that there is no element in the Book of Mormon that cannot be explained naturalistically, end of quote. John L. Sorensen summarizes some overall concerns, saying, the question of the origin of the Book of Mormon is not a trivial one for scholars. Hundreds of both popular and scholarly publications have appeared related to this question, and they continue to be issued. However, only a few theories about how the book came into being have been taken seriously by conventional scholars. Although skeptics may have mixed and matched their hypotheses at times, six primary naturalistic theories have been and still are promoted. One, Solomon Spaulding wrote the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Two, collaborators helped Joseph Smith create the text. Three, Joseph Smith's mental illness enhanced his writing ability. Four, Joseph functioned as a medium and produced the Book of Mormon as automatic writing. Five, 
Joseph Smith employed the oral performance skills of an accomplished orator like a revivalist preacher. Six, Joseph Smith's intellect was sufficient to create the Book of Mormon. The various theories are not exclusive of each other, and some authors have advanced more than one, perhaps without necessarily realizing it. This article examines the last of these theories, that Joseph Smith's intellect, by investigating everything that can be known about Joseph's education and cognitive abilities from the documentary record. Reports discussing his oratorical skills are also included since the first draft of the Book of Mormon was dictated, not written. Before proceeding, it should be noted that all historical research has limitations. Documentation of almost all studied events is, at best, incomplete. The lack of adequate eyewitness accounts often forces scholars to rely on secondary sources if they exist. In either case, the biases of the reporters, if they can be discerned, color their accounts. Consequently, most historical data contains ambiguities, gaps, or contradictions, allowing for more than one valid interpretation. Acknowledging these limitations, this paper attempts to give a voice to every relevant historical reference to Joseph Smith's education and intellect. Thus, by bringing all interested observers to the same documentary precipice, each can view the data and judge for themselves. While differing opinions will undoubtedly emerge, this transparency could create a no-spin zone for informed readers who discuss this subject in the future. Joseph Smith's Formal Education Joseph Smith grew up in a family that valued education. Both his father, Joseph Smith Sr., and grandmother, Lydia Mack, had taught school. Their academic involvement demonstrated their devotion to learning, probably making education a priority in their homes. Besides Joseph Smith's formal attendance at schools, it is possible that his older brother, Hiram Smith, supplemented his learning through personal tutoring. Lucy Mack Smith, their mother, recalled that while living in Lebanon, New Hampshire in 1811, 11-year-old Hiram attended the academy at Hanover. The academy, or Moore's Charity School, was associated with Dartmouth College in Hanover, a few miles north of the Smith home on the same side of the Connecticut River, writes Jeffrey O'Driscoll, Hiram Smith's biographer. Lucy did not explain why Hiram was chose to attend, but it may have been simply because his cousin of about the same age, Stephen Mack, was already a student there. Hiram returned to the Smith home in 1830. 13, sick with typhus, which all family members contracted. Joseph subsequently experienced a chronic knee infection requiring advanced surgical treatment administered by Dr. Nathan Smith of nearby Dartmouth Medical School. Afterward, Hiram sat beside him, Joseph, almost incessantly day and night. It is possible that Hiram, then 13, tutored his seven-year-old little brother, Joseph, for several months at this time. The next year, Joseph left for Salem, Massachusetts, to convalesce at the home of his uncle, Jesse Smith. At least five district school terms. Between 1808 and 1826, Joseph Smith attended local common schools in five or six areas. District schools held two terms each year, summer and winter, and his attendance during at least one term can be documented in Royalton, Vermont, from 1809 to 1812, West Lebanon, New Hampshire, from 1812 to 1815, and Palmyra, 1817 to 1821, Manchester, 
1825 to 1826 in New York. Researcher William L. Davis observes that Joseph may have been eligible to attend up to 22 terms between 1809 and 1826. Although the exact number he attended continues to be debated, Davis speculates that Joseph's overall estimated time in formal education beyond the five terms documented in the historical record was, quote, equivalent of approximately seven full school years, end of quote, or 14 terms. Several of Joseph Smith's contemporaries remember attending school with him, but some reported he did not always take advantage of the educational opportunities. Palmeroy Tucker accused Joseph of hunting and fishing and idly lounging around the stores and shops in the village instead of going to school like other boys. Perry Benjamin Pierce also wrote, The boys grew up without the desire for education. None of them Smith boys ever went to school when they could get out of it. Joseph's younger brother, William, reported his personal experience, which may have approximated Joseph's, of limited opportunities for acquiring an education. William added, being, like most, most youth, more fond of play than study, I made little use of the opportunities I did have. District Schools in the 1820s America Regarding Joseph Smith's training to become an author of the Book of Mormon, the precise number of terms he spent in district school classrooms may be less important because the curriculum touched only minimally the skills authors usually seek to develop. In their book, A History of Education in American Culture, R. Freeman Butts and Lawrence A. Kremen explain, The type the typical one-year district school was usually attended by a variety of age groups running all the way from children of four or five to adolescents in their teens. The early district schoolroom was most often a picture of a teacher seated at a central desk with one child after another approaching, reciting from text or memory, being rewarded with a smile or a blow, depending on the effectiveness of the recitation, and returning to his seat. As pointed out, the curriculum for each student did not always build upon the previous year's learning. One handicap to effective teaching was the fact that it might happen no two pupils were equally advanced in their studies. Also, the quality of instruction in district schools varied widely, in part because the schoolmaster's teaching credentials in some schools may have been little more than see one, do one, teach one. In 1826, James G. Carter, a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, reported, The teachers of the primary summer schools have rarely had any education beyond what they have acquired in the very schools where they begin to teach. Butts and Kremen note, little or no training was thought necessary for the post of teacher. In his book, Old Time Schools and School Books, author Clifton Johnson agreed. Generally, the teacher was young sometimes not more than 16 years old, but if he was an expert at figures, if he could read the Bible without stumbling over long words, if he could write well enough to set a decent copy, if he could mend a pen, if he had vigor enough to care and of character to assert his authority and strength enough of arm to maintain it, he would do. Edward G. Gordon and Elaine H. Gordon give a more critical account. Parents often lacked the knowledge or experience to hire good teachers. A report on schoolmasters in Illinois and Missouri during the 1830s stated that one-third were public nuisances. Due to incompetence or immorality, one-third did as much harm as good, and only about one-third were of some use in teaching basic literacy. 
Whether the upstate New York district school system suffered from similar weaknesses during the previous decades is undocumented. Born in 1809, Abraham Lincoln experienced frontier schooling after his family moved from Spencer County, Indiana in 1817. He later described his experience in Indiana. There I grew up. There were some schools, so-called, but no qualification was ever required of a teacher beyond reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three. If a straggler supposed to understand Latin happened to sojourn into the neighborhood, he was looked upon as a wizard. There was absolutely nothing to excite ambition for education. Of course, when I came of age, I did not know much. Joseph Smith's experience may have been better, but whether he attended district schools for five terms, 14 terms, or seven years, or more, the curriculum and teaching methodologies could have limited the learning experiences he would have encountered. Opportunities to learn creative writing and composition. As a training ground for authors to learn how to write long, complex books, Joseph Smith's local schools provide few opportunities. Although author William L. Davis declares that Joseph Smith's schooling included instruction in, quote, basic rhetoric and composition, end quote, available historical accounts do not support such claims. Creative writing and written composition assignments were not part of the education curriculums of district schools until decades later. The great majority of the one-room elementary schools which sprang up over America in the early 19th century, write Butts and Kremen, were, simply, were simple institutions providing a simple educational fair. These schools stressed basic reading, writing, spelling, arithmetic, and often geography and history. If paper and ink were available, a teacher might introduce short composition assignments to their, teacher, to their pupils, but paper was expensive in the 1820s and could be difficult to acquire. Harry G. Good explains... Excepting only arithmetic and handwriting, all subjects were taught through oral recitations, reading, spelling, grammar, and, when they were later introduced, history and geography, were recited orally. This was partly owing, no doubt, to the cost of paper. The almost exclusive use of the oral method had an unfortunate effect upon the whole curriculum. When pupils had mastered the simple mechanics of reading, the recitation was conducted by having each one read a paragraph or stanza aloud until the entire lesson could be read. Often, there was no attention to the meaning of the passage or even of the new words. Subjects such as grammar or geography were taught by an oral question-and-answer method based upon the words of the book. Nearly everything that was taught in the old schools was taught from a book and taught not by discussion. In an 1829 publication, school teacher Samuel R. Hall related how he asked a parent, Will you take this little paper for your children? It will cost but a dollar. The father replied, No, I am not able. Hall persisted, But I am persuaded you will find it a very great benefit to your family, and you may contrive to save the amount in some way by curtailing expenses less necessary. The father replied, I should be glad to take it, but I am in debt. I cannot. Chalk and handheld slates were also relatively rare in American schools in the early 1800s. Dennis A. Wright and Jeffrey A. Wright note, schools in the 19th century provided students with few, if any, school supplies and rarity with blackboards. Slates were not introduced in the classroom until about 1820 and lead pencils were not used until several years later. 
Harry A. Good adds, About 1817, the blackboard was introduced at West Point, Dartmouth, and other colleges. Twenty years later, it was still unusual in the primary schools of Massachusetts. As a youth, Lincoln also lacked paper, even to practice math calculations. Resourcefully, he used to write his arithmetic sums on a large wooden shovel with a piece of charcoal. After covering it all with examples, he would take his jackknife and whittle and scrape the surface clean, ready for more ciphering. Sometimes, when the shovel was not at hand, he did his figuring on the logs of the house walls and on the doorposts, and other woodwork that afforded a surface he could mark on with his charcoal. When paper was scarce, students used available supplies to practice penmanship, spelling, vocabulary, and perhaps how to write a letter. Most didactic exercises involved verbal repetition. Robert Connors, author of Composition Rhetoric, Backgrounds, Theory, and Pedagogy, explains the essential difference between rhetoric courses and composition courses, most simply, became that in composition, students had to do more than answer questions based on lecture or treatise. Composition was ineluctably practical. Students were expected to write. Composition books, unlike rhetoric texts, could not make do merely with oral questions and answers of a discipline whose product hung in the air and vanished. The first academic book teaching composition was not published in the United States until 1827, and it was designed for college classes. Few, if any, of the teachers in district schools would have been trained in composition. If the instructors possessed such skills, they probably would have sought better-paying jobs elsewhere. Joseph Smith's pre-1829 writing projects. Joseph Smith participated in several writing projects prior to dictating the Book of Mormon. Among them are three revelations in Doctrine and Covenants, the current section 3 of 345 words given in July of 1828, section 4 of 150 words given in February of 1829, and section 5, 1019 words given the next month. Since original manuscripts do not exist, whether Joseph Smith wrote these or dictated them to a scribe is unclear. In addition, he also recited the now lost manuscript of the Book of Lehi early in 1828 and may have penned one or two letters before April 7, 1829. Figure 2 charts Joseph Smith's known writing experiences and shows very little occurring before he recited the Book of Mormon. New England Educational Environment Joseph Smith lived in an area with bookstores and libraries that contained hundreds of volumes available for viewing and research. Although their internal documents and local recollections failed to describe him visiting them, Orson Miss Turner recalled, once a week, Joseph Smith Jr. would stroll into the office of the old Palmyra Register for his father's paper. The Palmyra Register was published between 1817 and 1821, indicating that Joseph would have been between 11 and 14 years of age. A few of Joseph Smith's acquaintances referred to him as an avid reader, including Pomeroy Tucker, who wrote in 1867, Joseph, moreover, as he grew in years, had learned to read comprehensively, in which qualification he was far in advance of his elder brother and even his father, and his talent was assiduously devoted as he quitted or modified his idle habits to the perusal of works of fiction and records of criminality such, for example, as would be classed with the dime novels of the present day. The stories of Stephen Burroughs and Captain Kidd and the like presented the highest charms for his expanding mental perceptions. 
Likewise, Philastus B. Spear recalled that in his youth, Joseph possessed a few novels and had a copy of the Arabian Nights. Another Palmyra resident recalled in 1876 that Joseph Smith spent his time reading bad novels. <clears throat> in contrast, his mother, Lucy Max Smith, recalled that Joseph seemed much less inclined to the perusal of books than any of the rest of our children. Joseph Smith's 1829 knowledge of the King James Bible. Lucy Max Smith also quoted a youthful Joseph saying, I can take my Bible and go into the woods and learn more in two hours than you can learn in the meeting in two years, if you should go all the time. But she also noted that by 1823, Joseph had never read the Bible through in his life. John Stafford, who grew up with the Smiths in Manchester, recalled that the Smith family studied the Bible in their home school. Palmer A. Tucker provided this description. As Joseph Smith further advanced in reading and knowledge, he assumed a spiritual or religious turn of mind and frequently perused the Bible, becoming quite familiar with portions thereof, both of the Old and New Testaments, selected texts from which he quoted and discussed with great assurance when it in the presence of his superstitious acquaintances. The prophecies and revelations were his special forte. His interpretation of the scriptural passages were always unique and original, and his deductions and conclusions often disgustingly blasphemous, according to the common apprehensions of Christmas Christian people. Here, Tucker announces that Joseph Smith was quite familiar with portions of the Bible in the 1820s. Still, Tucker also seems to be embellishing because he adds, the final conclusion announced by Joseph Smith was that the Bible was a fable. Joseph taught that the Bible is the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Articles of Faith, verse 8. Raising questions regarding the reliability of Tucker's other claims. Despite his reported biblical studies, David Whitmer remembered that Smith was ignorant of the Bible at the time of the dictation. Similarly, Emma Smith told M.N.C. Briggs in 1856 that Joseph had such a limited knowledge of the history at that time that he did not even know that Jerusalem was surrounded by walls. Years later, in 1877, Emma repeated the story to Nels Madsen and Parley P. Pratt, Jr. Joseph Smith had not read the Bible enough to know that there were walls around Jerusalem. Joseph Smith's oratorical abilities. Critics sometimes describe Joseph Smith as writing the Book of Mormon. In contrast, the historical record shows that between April and June of 1829, he recited 6,852 lengthy sentences, describes, and immediately published them as the 1830 Book of Mormon. Since then, none of the sentences have been fully edited or repositioned in the text. The historical record shows that Joseph Smith's first oral draft was surprisingly refined from an editing standpoint. The literary value of Joseph Smith's dictation has been recognized by non-Latter-day Saint scholars. The Book of Mormon is a masterpiece of the most uncommon man, writes Washington University professor Kenneth Wynne. The Book of Mormon is a seminal work. More recently, Yale University Chair of History Daniel Walker Howe wrote, The Book of Mormon should rank among the great achievements of American literature, but has never been accorded the status it deserves. In 1980, Gordon S. Wood, who would win the 1993 Pulitzer Prize for History, described it frankly. The Book of Mormon is an extraordinary work of popular imagination and one of the greatest documents in American cultural history. Nor no formal oratorical training. Such assessments support that Joseph Smith possessed advanced oratorical abilities in 1829, but how and when he developed them is unclear. 
His ability to verbalize a refined narrative like the 1830 Book of Mormon demonstrated rhetorical capabilities generally developed through practice. The authors of the high school textbook speech explained, the key is to practice. Only through practice can you begin to feel comfortable with the pressure of such limited time to prepare. Also, University of Wisconsin professor Harold Sheeb clarifies, doubtless the most significant single characteristic of oral narrative performance is repetition in a variety of forms, the repetition of words, of phrases, of full images, and finally of complete narratives. Despite such expectations, no one recalled Joseph Smith practicing for the Book of Mormon recitation. Richard Bushman reports that Joseph was not an eloquent preacher. He is not known to have preached a single sermon before the organizing the church in 1830. Similarly, the district school curriculum in the 1820s actively employed verbal repetition to teach grammar, vocabulary, and biblical studies. Another form of oral instruction, speaking of pieces, required the student to stand before the class and recite a short discourse or memorized narration. However, extemporaneous speakers' exercises, those that prepared a student to verbalize ideas composed on the spot or from previously memorized outlines, were not included. Despite these defi- this deficiency, the historical record describes other extracurricular activities that might have improved Joseph Smith's oratorical skill set. Telling stories to family in 1823. Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph's mother, describes his storytelling inclinations around 1823 when he was in his 17th year. During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of the continent, their dress, mode of traveling, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly as if he had spent his whole life with them. If Joseph's stories originated in his imagination, this recollection is evidence of his creativity as a youth. They include references to ancient inhabitants of this continent, including their dress, mode of travel, and the animals which, upon which they rode. Details not included in the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Although Lucy mentioned that Joseph spoke only occasionally, these family recitations could represent the tip of his expanding imagination iceberg and his attempts to hone oratorical skills. If so, other family members or acquaintances might have remembered, but only Lucy left a record. Joseph's younger brother, William, later claimed that Joseph was incapable of authoring a, quote, history of a once enlightened people, their rise, their progress, their origin, and their final overthrow that once inhabited this American continent, end of quote. William's statement seems to contradict Lucy's recollection or suggests that Joseph's recitals did not include such details or did not impress all family members. If imaginative tales commonly rolled from Joseph's lips or creative storytelling became a pastime as he prepared his mind and oratory skills for the 1829 Book of Mormon dictation, no one outside of the family recalled him actively rehearsing. In 1834, Eber D. Howe published statements from 22 local residents and two group statements from the inhabitants of Palmyra and Manchester. In July 1880, newspaperman Frederick G. Mather compiled written recollections from 12 citizens of Susquehanna, Broome, and Chenango counties, Pennsylvania. 
1888, Arthur Deming printed accounts from 14 individuals in two volumes of Naked Truths about Mormonism. Many of these persons knew Joseph Smith Jr. personally, but none describe him engaging in the activities of a village bard or entertaining spectators with his recitals. Journalist James G. Gordon Bennett visited the Palmyra area in August of 1831 and recorded that Joseph Smith's father was a great storyteller, but wrote nothing similar concerning the younger Joseph. Involvement as a debater and exhorter. As he attended religious meetings and camp gatherings as a youth, Joseph Smith witnessed a variety of sermonizing. At times, he may have participated as a lay member of the audience. In 1893, Daniel Hendricks recalled that Joseph was a good talker and would have made a fine stump speaker if he had had the training. According to several sources, Joseph Smith attended Methodist meetings but never joined the church. Palmer Tucker wrote, Protracted revival meetings were customary in some of the churches, and Smith frequented those of different denominations, sometimes professing to participate in their devotional exercises. At one time, he joined the probationary class of the Methodist Church in Palmyra and made some active demonstrations of engagedness, though he assumed convictions were insufficiently grounded or abiding to carry him along to the saving point of conversation, and he soon withdrew from the class. In 1851, Orsamus Turner remembered that Joseph Smith was very was a very passable exhorter at Methodist camp meetings. Joseph's informal involvement with Methodists lasted just a few month, months from the fall of 1824 to the winter of 1825. As a non-member exhorter who spoke impromptu during Methodist meetings, he would have received little or no formal oratorical training compared to that offered to exhorters with full membership. Turner also reported, Joseph had a little ambition and some very laudable aspirations. The mother's intellect occasionally shone out in him feebly, especially when he used to help us to solve some portentous questions of moral and political ethics in our juvenile debating club, which we moved down to the old red schoolhouse on Durfee Street. Here, Turner describes Joseph Smith as a competent debater, but attributes the ability to his mother's intellect when it shone out in him feebly. Overall, Turner seemed unimpressed with the youthful Joseph, saying, quote, he was lounging, idle, not to say vicious, and possessed of less than ordinary intellect. The author's own recollection of him are distinct ones, end of quote. Had Joseph distinguished himself as a highly skilled debater or exhorter, Turner might have spoken of him more favorably. Recollections of Joseph Smith's public speaking skills. Other references to Joseph Smith's oratory skills before and after 1829 are generally uncomplimentary. Jared Carter remembered him in the early 1830s as not naturally talented for a speaker. Similarly, a newspaper reporter in 1843 penned, he is a bad speaker and appeals to appears to be imperfectly educated. Peter H. Burnett, who was Joseph's lawyer in Missouri and later governor of California, recalled, his appearance was not prepossessing and his conventional powers were but ordinary. You could see at a glance that his education was very limited. He was an awkward but vehement speaker. In conversation, he was slow and used too many words to express his ideas and would not generally go directly to the point. Lorenzo Snow remembered, Joseph Smith was not what you would call a fluent speaker. He simply bore his testimony. Joseph Smith's pre-1829 educational opportunities. To summarize, besides 
his time spent in district school classrooms, Joseph Smith's education was supplemented by at least six extracurricular educational activities. 1812 to 1829, learning about and reading the Bible. 1813, Hiram Smith's possible tutoring at age seven. 1816 to 1825, participation in local religious meetings. 1821 to 1822, attends the juvenile debate club. 1823, occasionally shares imaginative stories with his family. 1824 to 1825, he is a passable exhorter at Methodist meetings. While additional opportunities for pre-1829 training, education, or experience as an author or orator may have been available to Joseph Smith, none are detailed in the historical record. Joseph Smith's later education. Although no teacher before 1829 remembered Joseph Smith's aptitude as a student, three later instructors recalled his abilities as they taught him during the mid-1830s. William McClellan recalls Joseph Smith's 1834 knowledge base. Years after his excommunication, William McClellan penned, I was personally and intimately acquainted with Joseph Smith, the man who read off the translation of the Book of Mormon, for five years near the end of the beginning of his ministry. He attended my high school during the winter of 1834. He attended my school and learned science all winter. I learned the strength of his mind as to the study and principles of science. Hence, I think I knew him, and I hear say that he had one of the strongest, well-balanced, penetrating, and retentive minds of any man with which whom I ever formed an acquaintance, among the thousands of my observations. Although, when I took him into my school, he was without scientific knowledge or attainments. Five years after dictating the Book of Mormon, McClellan acknowledged Joseph Smith's remarkable learning ability, but stated he was then without scientific knowledge. Early definitions of science equate it with general knowledge rather than limiting it to a specific genre. So McClellan's comment described Joseph Smith's depth of knowledge in 1834 as limited. Neither did McClellan believe that Joseph authored the Book of Mormon, calling it a divine record. McClellan cautioned James T. Cobb in 1880. When a man goes at the Book of Mormon, he touches the apple of my eye. He fights against truth, against purity, against light, against the purest or or one of the truest, purest books on earth. I have more confidence in the Book of Mormon than any book of this wide earth. And it's not because I don't know its contents, for I probably have read it through 20 times. It must be that a man does not love purity when he finds fault with the Book of Mormon. Believing Joseph Smith was the man who read off the Book of Mormon rather than its author, McClellan continued his admiration for the book after leaving the saints. Chauncey Webb, Joseph's 1834 grammar teacher. Another Kirtland teacher, Chauncey G. Webb, followed the saints to Nauvoo and to Utah but later apostatized. According to an account printed by an antagonistic reporter, Webb stated, Joseph was the calf that sucked three cows. He acquired knowledge very rapidly. He learned by heart a number of Latin, Greek, and French commonplace phrases to use them in his speeches and sermons. For instance, vox populi, vox diaboli, or laus deus, or amor vincent ominen, as quoted in the Nauvoo Wasp. I taught him the first rules of English grammar in Kirtland in 1834. He learned rapidly. 
While Webb may have been exaggerating, he too remembered Joseph Smith's impressive 1834 learning aptitude, but also states he taught Joseph the first rules of English grammar in Kirtland in 1834. It is unclear how Joseph Smith could dictate the Book of Mormon. With its 269,320 words and nearly 7,000 sentences in 1829, without knowing more than just the first rules of English grammar. Joshua Satius as Joseph Smith's Hebrew teacher. The church hired the third teacher, Joshua Satius, in 1836 to teach Hebrew to 40 students over seven weeks beginning in January 26th. Historians compiling the Joseph Smith Papers, Documents, Volume 5, explain. By all accounts, Joseph Smith was diligent student of Hebrew. After Oliver Cowdery returned to Kirtland with a quantity of Hebrew books on November 20th, 1835, Joseph Smith com- commenced an earnest study of the language. Though he participated in the formal classes taught by Satius, he also de- devoted considerable time to studying the language on his own. Between November 23, 1835 and March 29, 1836, Joseph Smith's journal mentions his study of Hebrew, whether in class or with colleagues or by himself, no fewer than 70 times. Matthew Gray also notes, in addition to attending his regular classes, Joseph asked Satius for private study sessions, worked ahead on translation assignments, reviewed lessons on Sunday, and studied when he was sick. After completing the class on March 30th, Satius issued Joseph Smith a certificate. It said, quote, Mr. Joseph Smith Jr. has attended a full course of Hebrew lessons under my tuition and has been indefatigable in acquiring the principles of the sacred language of the Old Testament scriptures in their original tongue. He has so far accomplished a knowledge of it, and he is able to translate to my entire satisfaction, and by prosecuting the study, he will be able to become proficient in Hebrew. End of quote. Here, Satius certifies that Joseph Smith exerted indefatigable efforts to learn Hebrew and that Joseph could translate to his entire satisfaction. But Satius also declares that Smith will become proficient only if he continues prosecuting the study of the language. In contrast, the 24-year-old Orson Pratt also attended the Hebrew lessons and was the only other student known to receive a certificate. During the winter, I attended the the Hebrew school about eight weeks, in which time I made greater progress than I could have expected in so short a period, wrote Orson Pratt. I obtained a certificate from J. Satius, our instructor, certifying to my capability of teaching that language. By many standards, Orson Pratt was a genius, and this episode supports Pratt bested Joseph Smith, at least while learning Hebrew. Joseph Smith's memory Joseph Smith's attempt to learn Hebrew provides a glimpse into his ability to memorize. As Professors Elvira V. Masura and Susan E. Gathercole note, quote, Research has revealed a close link between language acquisition and the capacity of the verbal component of working memory, end of quote. Had Joseph possessed a photographic or eidetic memory, he would likely have progressed more rapidly and surpassed other students like Pratt. No recollections that Joseph Smith was educated. While scattered positive references to Joseph Smith's intellect are available, virtually all mentioning his 1829 abilities are negative, and none refer to him as educated. The earliest reference to his literary competence was published in in August of 1829, months before the Book of Mormon was printed. Jonathan A. Hadley reflected insider knowledge as he described details of the coming forth and translation of the gold plates and then referred to Joseph Smith as very illiterate. 
Similarly, months before his June 16, 1831 baptism into the church, W.W. Phelps affirmed, I am acquainted with a number of persons concerned with the publication called the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith is a person of very limited abilities in common learning. E.D. Howe wrote in his 1834 publication, Mormonism Unveiled, that the common advantages of education were denied to our prophet or that they were much neglected, we believe to be a fact. Just a year before the Book of Mormon was published, the Palmyra Reflector reported that Joseph Smith's mental powers appeared to be extremely limited, and from the small opportunity he has had at school, he made little or no proficiency. Likewise, Isaac Hale recounted in 1834, I first became acquainted with Joseph Smith Jr. in November of 1825. His appearance at that time was that of a careless young man, not very well educated. Other statements describe Joseph Smith as ignorant or illiterate. In an 1875 account, Joseph's brother William specifically addressed Joseph's abilities in the 1820s. It is to be remembered that Joseph Smith was only 17 years of age when he first began his professional career in the ministry. That he was illiterate to some extent is admitted, but that he was entirely unlettered is a mistake. In syntax, orthography, mathematics, grammar, geography, and with other studies in the common schools of the day, he was no novice, and for writing, he wrote a plain, intelligible hand. William refers to Joseph as no novice regarding syntax, which is sentence formation, orthography, or spelling, mathematics, grammar, and geography. The Oxford Dictionary defines novice as an inexperienced person, one who is new to the circumstances in which he is placed a beginner. William does not specify how far in his recollection Joseph had advanced beyond novice or beginner, but William also states that Joseph was then illiterate to some extent, suggesting his progress was limited. Similarly, Emma Smith stated in 1879 that at the time of the Book of Mormon dictation, Joseph could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter. Martin Harris also recalled at the time that Joseph could not spell the word February. David Whitmer described Joseph as a man of limited education and could hardly write legibly. Joseph Smith recalled that he was deprived of the benefit of an education. I was merely instructed in reading, writing, and the ground rules of arithmetic. Biographer Richard Bushman estimates that Joseph had less than two years of formal schooling. John A. Gilbert, who typeset the Book of Mormon, remembered in 1881, we had a great deal of trouble with it, the Book of Mormon manuscript. It was not punctuated at all. They, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, did not know anything about punctuation. When asked, was Joseph Smith educated, he responded, oh no, not at all then. Sylvia Walker, who attended school with Joseph's brother William, recalled that he and the other children were very poor scholars. Abel Chase reported in 1881 that the Smiths were poorly educated, ignorant, and superstitious. None of Joseph Smith's classmates remember him as a star student, an avid learner, avid learner, or as intellectually gifted. In an, 1880, in an 1899 article, The Origin of the Book of Mormon, published in the American Anthropologist, Perry Benjamin Pierce summed up his research. Joseph Smith Jr. was at the time of the Book of Mormon publication 24 years of age. He was, according to some authorities, unable to read or write. By others, it is asserted that while he was able to read and write to some extent, he did so with difficulty. By no authority is it contended that he was in any respect more than a very poorly educated, any more than very poorly educated. He was an uneducated, uncultivated country boor of 
equivocal reputation and low origin. Contemporaries react to Joseph Smith as an author. When later asked how Joseph Smith created all the words of the Book of Mormon, several of his contemporaries speculated differently in in an 1879 conversation with Joseph's brother-in-law, Michael Morris, who married Emma's sister, Trial, an interviewer related. Michael Morris states that he first knew Joseph when he came to Harmony, Pennsylvania, an awkward, unlearned youth of about 19 years of age. He further states that when Joseph was translating the Book of Mormon, he, Morris, had occasion more than once to go in to his immediate presence and saw him engaged in his work of translation. When asked whether Joseph was sufficiently intelligent and talented to compose and dictate of his own ability the matter written down by scribes, to this Mr. Morris replied with decided emphasis, no. He said that he, Morris, was then not at all learned, yet he was confident that he had more learning than Joseph then had. When asked how he, Morris, accounted for Joseph's dictating the Book of Mormon in the manner he had described, to this he replied he did not know. He said it was a strange piece of work, and he had thought that Joseph might have found the writings of some good man and committed them to memory, recited them to his scribes from time to time. We suggest that if this were true, Joseph must have had a prodigious memory, a memory that could only that could only had been by miraculous endowment. To this, Mr. Morris replied that he, of course, did not know how Joseph was enabled to furnish the matter he dictated. Another witness, John H. Gilbert, the typesetter, similarly related. Was he, Joseph Smith, educated? Do you know? Oh, no, not at all then, but I understand that afterwards he made a great advancement and was quite a scholar in order. How do you account for the production of the Book of Mormon? Mr. Gilbert then if Joseph Smith was so illiterate? Well, that is a difficult question. It must have been from that Spalding romance you have heard of, I I suppose. The parties here, then, never could have been the authors of it, certainly. I have been, for the last 45 or 50 years, trying to get the key to that thing, but we have never been able to make the connecting yet. For some years past, I have been corresponding with a person in Salt Lake by the name of Cobb, who is getting out of work against Mormons, but we have never been able to find out what we wanted. A third, in 1881, Manchester neighbor John Stafford recalled, If young Smith was as illiterate as you say, doctor, how do you account for the Book of Mormon? Well, I can't. Except that Sidney Rigdon was connected with them. What makes you think he was connected with them? Because I can't account for the Book of Mormon any other way. Was Rigdon ever around there before the Book of Mormon was published? No, not that we could ever find out. Similarly, when asked if her husband could author the Book of Mormon, Emma Smith replied, Though I was an active participant in the scenes that transpired, it is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much so as to anyone. Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon, who left the church in 1838, wrote in 1847, As to the Book of Mormon, it would be doing injustice to myself to say that a man of Joseph's ability, who at that time did not know how to pronounce the word Nephi, could write a book of 600 pages as correct as the Book of Mormon. These assessments from individuals personally acquainted with Joseph Smith question whether he could have authored the Book of Mormon. Michael Morris believed Joseph memorized someone else's writings. Gilbert supported the Spalding theory. John Stafford blamed Sidney Rigdon, and Emma and Hiram Page implied supernatural assistance. 
Joseph Smith was intelligent, but minimally educated in 1829. The discussion above is not designated to portray Joseph Smith as illiterate or unintelligent in 1829 or any time. McClellan and Webb commented on his intelligence, and multiple later accounts agree. Lawyer John S. Reed, who defended him in trials in Chenango and Broome counties in 1830, recalled in 1844, Joseph Smith was often spoken of as a young man of intelligence and good morals and possessing a mind susceptible of the highest intellectual attainments. Similarly, Parley P. Pratt, who met Joseph Smith in 1830 and later became a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, penned in 1853, Joseph Smith's intelligence was universal and his language abounding in original eloquence peculiar to himself, not polished, not studied, not smoothed and softened by education and refined by art, but flowing forth in its own native simplicity and profusely abounding in the variety of subject and manner. Alternatively, the primary focus of this paper is to demonstrate the problem with secularist theories that portray Joseph Smith as intellectually capable of producing the Book of Mormon using his 1829 cognitive abilities, that he dictated every word described is well documented historically, and based on that evidence, skeptics could then declare that he must have had the natural intelligence and abilities to accomplish the feat, For example, in 2019, Aaron Shalev, chair of the history department of Hoffa University, wrote, Historians have long denied Smith the image of an ignorant rural boy who could not have acquired all the material that he would have needed to write the Book of Mormon. But the case is more complex because little or no manuscript data beyond the historical artifacts of the original and printer's manuscripts of the Book of Mormon supports Joseph Smith's capacity to do so. Undaunted by his limitation, empiricists often speculate when and where Joseph Smith supposedly gained the knowledge and training he would have needed to dictate a lengthy, complex, and refined book. However, among scholars, a theory derived almost exclusively from speculations will generally be less persuasive. If it contradicts the vast majority of available documentary evidence, its credibility should diminish further. Ironically, The popularity of Joseph Smith's intellect theory continues among many observers today, despite the lack of historical data supporting it. Whether evidentiary transparency can expose its weaknesses enough to impact its acceptance by skeptics remains to be seen. Brian C. Hales is a retired anesthesiologist who has published extensively on Joseph Smith and plural marriage. His more recent studies involve the origin of the Book of Mormon. Greg Coford Books will be publishing his new manuscript, Joseph Smith, non-author of the Book of Mormon, working title later in 2023. This has been a recording of Joseph Smith's education and intellect as described by documentary sources by author Brian C. Hales, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, 2020, read by Brian C. Hales.